David famously declared, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and deliverer. While David is correct, there are dark periods of our lives when we may be tempted to view God our rock as a huge boulder, large, heavy, unmovable, and unresponsive. Times when we are facing unrelenting and unyielding challenges in life and God does not respond to our prayers. Instead of being our deliverer, he is silent, cold, and impassive, like a rock. If you have ever experienced a time when you have felt this way, you will want to join Kent Edwards, Nathan Norman, and Kristen Norman as they discover in Psalm 123 how God's people should respond when God doesn't show up. Welcome to Crosstalk, a Christian podcast whose goal is for us to encourage each other to not only increase our knowledge of the Bible, but to take the next step beyond information into transformation. Our goal is to bring the Bible to life, into all our lives. I'm Brian French. Today, Dr. Kent Edwards, Kristen Norman, and Nathan Norman continue the discussion through the Psalms. If you have a Bible handy, turn to Psalm 123 as we join their discussion. There's an old saying uh, attributed to filmmaker Woody Allen that 90% of life is just showing up. Hey, Allen's point is a good one. Showing up for others means that there's someone there when you need them. You show kindness by helping others and not just thinking of yourself. Uh, showing up means you give people the respect that they deserve. Nathan, Kristen, have you found this to be true, that a lot of life is just showing up? Yeah, the first example that comes to mind when I think about this is my grandmother passed away um, several years ago, and that was my first like close death to me mm -hmm. that I could really remember in my you know adult years. Mm -hmm. And I was amazed how touched I felt when people showed up, mm. you know, at the memorial pass, at the funeral. The people who were there, people who I hadn't seen in years, took the time out of their day, you know, away from kids or carrying kids on their back and just coming to pay their respects and to say, I'm here for you. It meant a lot. I was surprised by how much it meant to me. You know, it's one of those moments you're like, oh, my family will be around me. But seeing people from your life, knowing that they're there just to say, I'm sorry, um, it meant a lot to me. That stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah, good examples. Weddings and funerals. So there's the funeral one. And I remember for our wedding, I had a friend from high school who lived in Florida when we got married up here, here in New York. And I sent him an invitation and he came by himself, uh, like so disconnected from everybody else. He came to the reception. Uh, he interacted with us. I mean, that man, you, you took your time to come to Florida to a bunch of people. You don't even know my wife, right? right? <laughs> you just know me. Uh, that it meant a lot that Josh showed up and it still does. It was, um, during COVID that our youngest son and his wife decided to, to move from Southern California where they lived close to us up to Washington state, um, near Seattle, uh, almost to the Canadian border. That's a long way. They decided they're going to move there. They needed to find a place that didn't have such high housing costs and so on. And so they went out and, um, began uh, working with moving companies. And it was interesting when we went to them and said, look, your family, we're here for you. Um, how can we help? Do you know what the cost is 
of a moving company? Mm. Yes. Yes, um, we do. <laughs> we have moved from New York to California, from California to Michigan, Michigan back to New York. <laughs> <laughs> so when we said, yeah, we're here to help, we've got a small truck, let's get a U-Haul and we will over Christmas drive you through terrible winter weather all the way up. We will help you get set up and then we're going to drive back because, you know, family's family. We care about you. And that helped cement, uh, help encourage uh, an already good relationship. Wow. Um, because, wow. hey, no, uh, we want to show up. We want to be part of your life. And we want to help you. Yeah. I think that's what genuine friends do, right? Your, do. Uh, your kids are sick. You know, can I help you? Can I bring over some food? Can I babysit some of them? Can I, what can I, what can I do to help? They help you move. They look after your kids when you're sick. They help you find your next job, maybe, when you get laid off. And it's interesting that God is, among his other attributes, is a friend. Jesus said in John chapter 15, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for my friends. And he looked his disciples in the eye and said, You are my friends. Oof. We know this. And that's, a, that's true. We see it in the Bible. Uh, we've experienced it in life. But what do we do when God doesn't show up? That is the issue that the psalmist faces in Psalm 123. I find this psalm interesting. It's, it's a very short song, for one thing. It has only two stanzas. But another thing I find interesting is the unusual arrangement of those two stanzas. It's common for Psalms to have a problem-solution structure. Introduce the problem and then talk about the solution, but here the pattern is reversed. The problem is stated in the last stanza. In verse 3 it says, Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. Hmm. What's the psalmist's issue? What's the problem that the psalmist is facing? They're hated. They're treated terribly. This contempt, this ridicule. I, I know not all of our listeners are in America, but in North America, there is a cartoon for adults where there is this uh, called The Simpsons, and there is one of the bullies, whenever someone messes up, goes, hey, That's kind of what this feels like. No matter what you do, these people are showing up, you're losers. You don't matter. <laughs> You're idiots. And to be put down like that constantly over and over and over, it is psychological warfare. It's exhausting. It is. Well, I think that focus on the words no end, right? You mentioned that there, that enduring quality of it. It feels like it's never going to end. There's no way out. You know, it feels like you're just stuck mm -hmm. here and it's going to forever be like this until you die, right? That hopelessness. Right. Well, when you hear that with like young people who've committed suicide, and they've been bullied in school for years and years and asked for help. And you look at their diaries and they say, it's, it's never going to end. It's never ending. No one's going to help me. They feel absolutely hopeless and trapped. I mean, that's the, that's the oppression the psalmist feels here is I, I'm never going to get out. They hate me. They have all the power and they will never stop. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, right. This is bullying. This is a, an attack of people against the people of God. And it's constant. It seems never ending. What do you think caused it? 
What's the source of this? Well, you know, it doesn't say explicitly in the text, but they are uh, probably dealing with people who are either uh, not followers of the one true God, or they are very nominal believers. <laughs> so, so, you know, followers in name only. So they're living differently. And in, in their different lifestyle, they're not prospering as well as the people who are choosing not to follow God. It seems like God's abandoned them. Maybe they've lost battles. Maybe they've uh, lost land or the finances, or uh, they've gone through a uh, horrible divorce. Their kids have turned their back on them. It, it just seems like you follow God, and what has it gotten you? It's gotten you nothing but hardship. You're losers for following him. Yeah, that's that's true. I wonder, and we don't know this for sure because it's not stated in the in the psalm explicitly. I wonder if it has to do with um, when Judah was taken into captivity. Um, yeah, very well could be. You know, in Second Kings twenty four and twenty five, uh, the author tells us when um, uh, Bab when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem and forced the Judean king Jehoiakim to pay an enormous tribute. A few days later, Jehoiakim had the brilliant idea of not paying the tribute. And so he came back and laid siege again. The king lost his life. The next king got taken into exile along with a court and many others. And ultimately, he came back and destroyed Jerusalem. So what do you think the pagan neighbors would think of the God of Israel at this point? What would his reputation be? Well, that he's not strong enough to protect you. You know, he might have used to be strong enough, but obviously he's not anymore. Yeah. You know, why are you still choosing to follow this God if he's not even going to keep you safe? Right. You're diminished. Your capital's in ruins. Your people are suffering. Many of them are captives. And you're saying he's the Lord of the universe. Well, not only that, but your God did this to you. <laughs> right. According to Jeremiah, oh, your God did this to you. What kind of God does that? <laughs> Um, and how could Israel refute their, their insults? <laughs> he, he's disciplining us. <laughs> <laughs> it's not him that's bad, it's us who's bad. Um, right, you know. <laughs> right, right. No, they've got no answer for that. They're saying we've got evidence that your God is a loser, that he is not powerful. And, uh, and they're mocking him. They're mocking them. You're worshiping a useless God that has resulted in failure. Wow. We don't face that today exactly, but um, there are times when God seems to have apparently failed his children. Unbelievers can take note and they can attack us, attack the, the, the nature and person of God because of the circumstances we face. Can you think of some examples when non-Christians would mock us for our faith because we have dared to worship God, even when the circumstances are anything but positive? Well, I think about, you know, our hope for eternal life um, mm -hmm. and how that can seem trite in this world today. You know, it feels like it's just wishful thinking, right, to the world. They're like, oh, you know, people are like, live your best life now because this is the only life you have, right? And right. They're like, no, there's a better life to come. Yeah. But that's hard for them to understand. Yeah, it makes no sense from a secular perspective. Go for the gusto. Grab it now. Yeah, and you think of any kind of natural evil, as theologians call it, so a natural disaster or disease. 
And when that hits a believer, right, the the tornado took out the believer's house. Mm-hmm. Well, where is your God now? Right. What has he done? Right. You uh, come down with uh, with cancer or uh, or a, a faithful follower dies of uh, of COVID-19. Oh, well, where was their faith? You know, I, how, how did God help them? Uh, Christians die at the same rate as mm-hmm. non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, you lose your job, and why would God do this to me? Yeah, like why? <laughs> what good is it to follow God if you're going to lose your job and and your house is going to get get uh, taken away and foreclosed upon? What does it matter if you follow God and your children uh, don't want anything to do with you? Right. Well, and I think about in the media recently in the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of the world mocking when Christians are saying thoughts and prayers. Mm. You know, so mm. this incident happens, this national tragedy happens. And they're like, okay, all the people are going to come out and say our thoughts and prayers, our thoughts and prayers. What good is that? You know, because they want something to be done. Right. And I get that, right? We want something politically to change. We want something to change in in our world in a way that we can see it, in a way that makes Mm -hmm. a difference. But as Christians, we know that when we actually pray, it does make all the difference and it can make all the difference. But to somebody who doesn't believe, that seems like foolishness. Right. If God really is our fortress then how come Christians as well as non-Christians had their houses burned to the ground in Hawaii, right, on Maui? Right. Um, yeah. When God seems like a rock and he's not answering our prayers, he's not delivering us as we would like, um, and we are mocked because of that. We cry out for mercy, but we do not see mercy. We're, we're not experiencing it. That's hard to take because uh, for Israel, because God has come to Israel's rescue in the past, right? He sure has. Um, yeah. He parted the Red Sea. Yeah. He gave them manna so they wouldn't starve in the desert. He drove out all, most all of the, uh, uh, the people in the promised land. Yeah. God has rescued them time and time and time again. His divine intervention is featured all through the Bible, but not every time. Not every time. God is uh, God is not our servant. He doesn't exist to make our life perfect. And this time, God doesn't show up. Why? <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the answer. Hmm. And often we don't know, right? Uh, I think of my um, mother-in-law who suffered from ovarian cancer for so many years before it finally claimed her life. Yes, she believes God can heal. Yes, she asked God to heal. And yes, she asked God, how come either heal me or take me home? But this incessant suffering, why, why, why? We ask that question. We don't know why God has failed to act. But what does Israel do? What is Israel's response when God is a rock, unmoving and unresponsive? What do they do in verses 1 and 2? It says, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sits enthroned in heaven, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he shows us his mercy. Hmm. Wow. Wow. That last line, until he shows us his mercy. We will not stop. We'll keep looking at him. We see two metaphors or maybe one metaphor with two versions in, um, in that stanza. 
What is the songwriter saying to us through those metaphors? What do they mean? Well, you have this master-servant relationship, master-slave right. relationship. Mm-hmm. They've got complete control in the situation, the master. They do. So the master could change things instantly mm-hmm. for the slave, right? Yes. One word, he's got the power, he's got the authority. Okay. Do they have an obligation to do so? They do not. No. They have the ability. Yes. But not the obligation. Why do we read the slaves look to the hands of their masters? Notice how that how that phrase is repeated. As the eyes of the slaves look to the hand. As the eyes of the maid look to the hand. Why are they looking to the hand? Oh, because the hand is the metaphor. That's that's how they act. <laughs> Do something. Take some action. And, and why are they continuing to look at it? They're trusting that at some point he's going to or she is going to do something. Absolutely. They have the expectation. I'm going to watch until you take action. Right. They know the history and character of their masters. They know who that is. They know that their master will act and they wait with uh, bated breath for that to happen. They also know that the, their master has the authority, the power to act. I mean, that's why they say in verse one, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sits enthroned in heaven. Woof. That is, they know that the Lord is their master, that they are the slave, but that their God has the character and the power to change their lives. Notice as well that these mocked and ridiculed people are walking to Jerusalem, right? This is a song of ascents to worship the God who seemed to have abandoned them. That was not a rock of refuge, but a rock of inertia. This is a journey of faith. This is a journey that displays confidence in the character and authority of their God to remedy their situation. They're looking at their powerful and loving God with a confident expectation that he will not permanently forsake them. Like a good father, they know God cares for his children, but he has not done so yet. That is their response to the God who seems to have failed to act, to the God who seems to be missing in action. Although he has not acted, I am continuing to put my faith in him because I know he has the character and he's got the power to intervene and he will, but he hasn't done so yet. It reminds me they had of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Mm -hmm. And they had that example for them where they said, you know, God can save us from this. But even if he doesn't, he is still God. We will still serve him. Go ahead, throw us in the fire. And they were in that fire when they were finally rescued. And they had that example, right, of God showing up when it was beyond the last moment, like before, beyond what we could even think would be possible that God could save us from. You know, oh, he was going to save you before this. Oh, he was going to save me then. He's going to, beyond the last minute. It's not even like God comes in at the last minute. He comes even beyond what we <laughs> could think would be the last minute. And they have this history and they have this example. They know their God. They know that he will show up in his timing, even if it seems beyond saving at that point. Yeah, that's a, an excellent example of this put into practice. They do not lose sight of their God. I lift up my eyes to you whose throne is in heaven. I'm, and I am coming to you to worship you, asking for mercy. 
but loving you and trusting you, even if that has not yet come. What will we say? You know, in our podcast, we want to bring God's word to life, to lives. What do you say to a person that feels this way, that feels like a member of this group, looking for mercy, not finding it? What would you, what would, what advice would you give? There's a couple of things. Uh, oftentimes believers, when they're in this kind of dark night of the soul, as it were, uh, they're like, okay, did I do something wrong? And maybe you did. Maybe God mm -hmm. is disciplining you because of some sin that you had. And so it's possible. spend time in prayer, uh, repentance, talk with your, your pastor or uh, a trusted believer and uh, work through your life and see if there's some uh, sin that needs to be repented of. I think that's a good place to start. But it's not always that. Uh, sometimes God calls us to suffer. Uh, mm -hmm. Martin Luther, uh, from his Catholic roots, rightfully said, you know, we kind of have two competing thought processes in the Christian life. You have the theology of the cross and you have the theology of glory. The theology of glory says God reveals himself mostly through beautiful things like nature and, and the majesty of his works. And you're like, oh, wow, you know, and in music and art. And, and that is true. And we all look for that. <laughs> but there's also the theology of the cross and God reveals himself through suffering. If you want to know how much God hates sin, look at Jesus on the cross. If you want to know mm -hmm. how, how much God loves you, look to Jesus mm -hmm. on the cross. And so sometimes God allows us to suffer, uh, not, not even for character formation, not uh, as a form of discipline, but sometimes in that suffering, he is revealing himself to us. He's revealing himself to the world, either through that suffering or through the answer to that suffering. And we are in those moments, sometimes God is saying, come walk in the footsteps of your master. Mm -hmm. Jesus suffered for your sake. Now I'm calling you to suffer in the same way. Yeah. And in the process, let's remember that God has not left you. Right. God has not forsaken you, even though it may feel like it. And as was said, go to church. Don't isolate yourself. Uh, you need people to remind you of what you already know about the character and faithfulness of God. Like the psalmist, keep your eye, keep your focus on him, on his hand, so that we can wait expectantly for his response. Because he will respond. It's not a matter of if, but when. Hmm. It may not be always even in this life, but he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. I remember years ago as a kid being in church and one of our pastors, Pastor Bruce Baker, uh, he was sharing how he was talking with a believer who was uh, in, in the process of dying and he was just so angry at God and so angry at mm. life. And, and he finally said, I looked at him and I said, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen to you is that you die and you get to see Jesus in paradise. <laughs> <laughs> and and for, I think far too often we get stuck like this is all that there is, but but there isn't. There is a life that comes. There is beauty beyond the the nightmare. I have a a scripture verse up in my office with a picture of Jesus wiping the the tears off of the eyes of of Saint John when he's viewing the Revelation because it says in Revelation one day God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There is goodness that is coming. Yes. Well, and I think of that verse, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
And it's not that your troubles are light. It's not that they're easy. Of course. It's just that in comparison to the eternal glory, they're so, it's such a small moment in time. When you look at the full glimpse of eternity, when you look at all that we have ahead of us, what we're going through, although it's not light, Mm -hmm. when we have Jesus Christ, he takes that bird, he takes that yoke. We can see that eternal glory and it makes it seem light. When our eyes are on that outstretch of eternity, those troubles can seem lighter when you're looking at Christ. Oh, well said. Well said. Maybe it's because I fly so much that uh, I think of this metaphor of uh, eternity versus our present life. I think the life that we're living now is kind of like getting on an airplane, getting ready for a flight. Yeah, you know, sometimes there's music playing over the loudspeakers. They put you in a soft chair. and They may come and offer you a glass of water or something. And, um, you know, it's kind of nice just sitting there. No one is giving you assignments. Nobody can reach you. You're you're away from all the pressures of life. You just, and you taxi around the airport, and that's absolutely fine. But the point of getting on the plane is not to stay in the taxiway. Mm. The point of the plane is to get to your destination. It seems to me that the life we're living now is kind of on the taxiway. We're getting ready for what's coming. But it's not our destination. So, Nathan, yeah, when we die, we will take off to a destination that is infinitely better than the tarmac of the runway. And what we're doing now is just getting ready for the flight. Having that perspective, I think, uh, can be really helpful. What application would you give to people who are not in this difficult situation? (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) It will come, don't worry. (laughs) You guys are pessimists, look. My recommendation would be um, keep an eye out for those who are. Yeah. Right? It's easy when things are going well to be caught up in our own life and not be aware of someone who didn't show up at church when someone's missing from small group, when someone's under a burden and they're wondering, where is God? Uh, Why is God a rock that is unresponsive at this point and not a refuge for me? I think we need to help people to gain that perspective because sometimes, you know, We need a nudge. We need someone to give us a perspective that our suffering doesn't easily allow us to to have. I think it's hard to learn to pray. My Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you, and I wait for you. And I look to you as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of their mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows mercy. This is Psalm 123. But the truth that it gives us is not as easy to apply as 1, 2, 3. How should God's people respond? When unbelievers mock us because of God seems to be missing in action when we need him the most? To remember that His timing is not always our timing. And that our loving, all-powerful God cares for us, even in the midst of his absence. And to patiently wait for him to act. Because one day, in this life or the next, he will. I remember Moses' words in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified, for the Lord your God goes with you. 
He will never leave you nor forsake you. When God doesn't show up when we would like, let's remember, he's the friend who will never leave us and never forsake us. Every believer will go through a dark night of the soul when they feel like God is nowhere to be found. If that's you, don't walk away from God. Instead, lean into him and his people. God hasn't abandoned you, and he never will. I trust that today's discussion of God's word has been helpful and served as an encouragement to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Together, let's bring God's word to life, to our lives this week. The Crosstalk Podcast is a production of Crosstalk Global, equipping biblical communicators so every culture hears God's voice. To find out more about this educational nonprofit organization, please visit www.crosstalkglobal.org. You can also help support this show by rating it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're enjoying it. Tune in next time as we continue our discussion through the Psalms. Be sure to join us. That's why they call it Windows, Kristen. Because you have to open and close it all the time. Uh, (laughs) He's used that joke a number of times here, so he's happy to have a new audience person to to try it on. We may need to rotate guests so I can keep saying (laughs) (laughs) You want to join Kent Edwards, Nathan Norman, and Kristen Norman. It's with an I. There's two I's. As... (sighs) Totally different pronunciation. As just, I looked at the word yes, and I'm one like, is Kristen I'm like, and one is Kristen. <laughs> I'm like, what is that word there? It really, I, I saw it. I, I actually had a hiccup. I'm like, who's that now? <laughs> I've been trained well. It's okay. Kristen's own family often gets it wrong. As discovered in Psalm 123. I just wanted to treat you like family. <laughs> 123. You should probably start that line again. From Nathan Norman. No, I don't actually read this. Oh, okay. Like, I'm just, I'm just reading this so we are aware. Brian, read, oh, okay. I send this to Brian. He, okay. I'm sorry, you don't know anything. And, and <laughs> I'm just, I know no, a lot no. of things. Oh. I don't know this particular no, I meant, thing. Oh, <laughs> my word. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just, I need to go get something downstairs for five minutes. <laughs> I meant you don't know. You haven't done this before. <laughs> And I am assuming that you... Okay. So you're just reading this for fun? No, I'm reading it so we're all oriented toward what in the world's going on. Just go ahead. (laughs) This is going on the out clip there, the outtakes there. As discovered in Psalm 123, how God... That's the issue that the psalmist is dealing with in Psalm 1243. (laughs) (laughs) Button got pressed there. Guess so. Um, That is the issue that the psalmist faces... In Psalm 122. 123, I think. Are we in 123? We are 123, <laughs> We'll yes. get there. I'll get there. Okay, fourth time. It's always the hard sentences that throw me. Um, <laughs> One, two, three. <laughs>